Harry Houdini was a magician and an escape artist so famous that he is still a household name today, a century after his death. He performed all over the world in front of kings and queens, aristocrats and robber barons. He wowed massive crowds and he still continues to influence the entertainment world today. But this isn't a story about any of that. This is the story of a young failed magician who was on the verge of giving up on his big dreams and making it in show business. A young man who was about to quit everything he'd worked so hard for for years to go back to his hometown to take a job in a factory making men's neckties for the rest of his life. But before giving up on his big dreams of show business, Harry Houdini went on one last tour through the Canadian Maritimes provinces in the summer of 1896 to do one final tour of his beloved magic show before giving up for good. That Maritimes tour, though, would change Houdini's life. This is the first of a two-part series on the Maritimes tour that saved Harry Houdini. You're listening to Backyard History, the hidden stories that happened in your own backyard, the podcast version of the weekly history column running in newspapers across the Maritimes, with your host and author, Andrew McLean. There are literally hundreds of books on Harry Houdini, but I'm going to quote here from Bruce McNabb's excellent book called The Metamorphosis, The Apprenticeship of Harry Houdini, to give you a bit of a sense of who Houdini would become later in life. He was the first man to fly a powered aircraft in Australia. He invented and patented a diving suit. He allied with police forces, teaching them the tricks of scammers. Houdini also started the motion picture company and starred in five movies. He tirelessly exposed the spiritualists who defrauded grieving widows. Houdini grew up speaking three languages and learned others on the fly, addressing foreign audiences in their native tongue. The original self-promoter, his methods are copied to this day by rock stars, mixed martial artists, and politicians. In spring of 1896, though, Harry Houdini was 22 years old a bow-legged Hungarian Jewish immigrant standing a mere five foot, five inches tall. He was on tour throughout New England with a magic show troupe, along with his wife and stage partner, Bess, whose real name was Wilhelmina Beatrice Rayner. She was a singer from Brooklyn, and she was actually even shorter than her husband, standing a mere four foot, nine inches tall. In the spring of 1896, the two of them were broke, and they were stranded in Boston. By this point, Harry Houdini had been working for a decade, trying to become a successful magician. Despite all of his hard work and his determination, he had never tasted anything even remotely close to success. And even by the distinctly low standards of his failing career, this New England tour had been a particularly searing failure. Harry and Bess were living in a bunk in a shared trailer with several other performers during the tour. They'd been paid so little that they had to get second jobs between performances, him doing construction work and her singing in dive bars. The crowds that had seen them had been unappreciative and often downright mean. The audiences in New England had been aggressive during the performances. They'd screamed at Houdini on stage. When he tried to do his disappearing coin magic tricks, they hurled coins at him. 
things only got worse when the whole tour went bankrupt. And now the Houdinis were stuck, alone and impoverished, in New England. Back home in New York City, Harry Houdini had a decent enough job working in a factory, cutting men's neckties. But he wanted more. He wanted to become a showbiz star. That's what led him to leave the tie-making factory job he had to go on this ill-fated New England tour, doggedly pursuing his dream, no matter how far-fetched it seemed. It seemed that his big dreams were destined to end in failure, and the factory job was still there, waiting for him, as soon as he made it back to New York City. However, entirely by chance, while trying to get together enough money for a train ticket back to New York, they met a Halifax man. He called himself Marco the Magician. Marco the Magician had a little tour company himself, with a crew of three stagehands and a rather awful lot of stage equipment, including smoke and mirrors, ropes and pulleys, props and sets, to make it look like Marco was conjuring real magic, when of course it was all elaborate stage tricks. Marco the Magician was on his way from New England, where he'd been touring, to go back home to the Maritimes. He was a mildly successful magician himself, and he had a tour scheduled which would last the entire summer. It would take him to pretty much every small town in New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Marco the Magician offered Bess and Harry Houdini a spot opening for him on his tour of the Maritimes. They needed a job, and he needed an opening act. Although they had basically decided to quit show business, they didn't actually want to quit show business, and they leapt at this unexpected opportunity to keep performing a little bit longer, before going back to New York City to work in a tie factory. This tour's first stop was in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, on May 28, 1896. Houdini had an awful trip trying to get there from Maine by ferry. See, Harry Houdini had grown up in the American Midwest, and he spent his early childhood in the slums of New York City. Neither of these places are known for having a lot of boats, and not being used to traveling by ship, he was definitely not a boat person. And so Houdini spent most of his trip to the Maritimes at the ship's railing, throwing up over the side. His Maritimes tour was not off to a good start. Things actually only got worse as soon as they got to Yarmouth. There, the magic troupe immediately discovered that they had a rival entertainment group that was touring the Maritimes on the same circuit as them, with roughly the same dates. And this rival tour, led by 63-year-old Rufus Summerby, featured an impressive rival that Marco the Magician and Houdini could not compete with for audiences' affections. Trained, performing monkeys. The monkeys leapt from trapezes, they rode bicycles, they walked on a high wire, and they did boxing matches, all while, apparently, appropriately costumed. It was a tough act to beat, and the public gravitated towards the monkey act instead of Houdini's magic tricks. Not only that, apparently Houdini had to share a change room with the monkeys in Yarmouth. It turned out that getting upstaged by monkeys set the tone for the whole tour. Next, the tour went up to New Brunswick, where they would perform the first part of their summer tour. In Moncton, Harry Houdini would perform a magic show in a wallpaper shop. 
Such was the state of the tour that they were playing anywhere that would have them. There was only a tiny crowd that came to the wallpaper shop show in the first place, which was embarrassing enough. But things only grew even more humiliating when the tiny audience grew so bored with Houdini's show that they wandered off mid-performance to actually look at the wallpapers. Houdini's show was apparently literally more boring than watching wallpapers. While by and large the tour was ignored by the spectators wherever they went, at least a few audience members that did show up weren't abusive like the crowds had been in New England. There is no record of anyone throwing anything at Houdini in a wallpaper shop. And even better, the local newspapers were actually really supportive of Houdini. For example, the Moncton Daily Transcript newspaper wrote, Houdini showed himself to be a magician of the highest order and excelled any ever seen in this city. His card tricks were phenomenal. He escaped handcuffs in seconds, performing mysteriously with startling rapidity. It is astonishing how he can make things appear and disappear at will. The tricks he presents excel any ever seen here before. The paper even urged readers to be sure to give him a good house tonight. Unfortunately, despite the glowing reviews from the press, the public weren't particularly interested and his shows were sparsely attended. A new and more exciting event had rolled into town. The Monkey Circus was back. And this time they had new members. Some of the monkeys had just had babies. The tiny attractions were a big public draw, and young Houdini's magic simply couldn't compete. At this early stage in his life, being upstaged wasn't exactly anything new for this young man who would later perform for royalty Robert Barons and whose name is still known today to millions. The son of a rabbi, Houdini had grown up in crushing, desperate poverty in the American Midwest. As a child, he'd snuck into circuses which offered an emotional escape to the young child. It also offered him an inspiration and an avenue to dream of a bigger, brighter, better future. He learned some tricks from these traveling circuses. They were sleight of hand card tricks, like card tricks making coins disappear. He also learned circus performances. His first ever public performance would be in a circus at the tender age of nine years old on a trapeze in a traveling circus. He called himself Einrich, the Prince of the Air. That stage name and his trapeze performances didn't really take off. At the age of 12, he ran away from home, traveling around the Midwest in a circus, hitchhiking and performing card tricks for food. He never really said much later in life about that particular experience, but it was generally not thought to have been a particularly positive one. Some months later, he returned home, deflated and defeated. Soon after, in 1887, his family moved to New York City, living together in a tiny boarding house on East 79th Street. We remember Houdini for his escape acts, for getting mysteriously out of handcuffs, out of chains, out of straitjackets, out of giant tanks of water while suspended upside down, and so on. However, for the entire summer that the Houdinis crisscrossed New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, Houdini was only starting to get into escape acts. At the time, he was calling himself the King of Cards, and he was focused mostly on card tricks. He was described by newspapers as competent, but not particularly stellar. 
Even the stage name that he chose for himself, the King of Cards, was a pretty generic, with lots of other different performances using that same name. Tours themselves for performances in 1896 were set up quite differently than they are today. Obviously travel was way more difficult back then than today. So when touring musicians or actors or magic shows would go to big cities, they would often stay for several weeks performing over and over and over in residencies. Houdini's Maritimes tour was set up like this. While they played in pretty much every small town, swooping in and playing a couple days before leaving, the highlights of the tour were being set up for several weeks in the Maritime region's two major cities. Both of which at the time were gritty, industrial, densely packed urban spaces. The first of these cities was St. John, New Brunswick, and he would end his tour in Halifax, Nova Scotia. These two extended residencies in the two great cities of the Maritimes would be extremely important in molding Houdini into the world-famous star that he later became, although they would be important to him for very different reasons. The first of the two major residencies was in St. John, where Marco the Magician's touring troupe would be playing the city's prestigious Opera House Theatre for a whole month. From their arrival in the city, it was clear that things were not going according to plan. This actually wasn't the monkey's fault this time. It seems that when Marco the Magician booked the tour, he had left a five-day gap in St. John without any shows planned. He expected to find dates when he got there, but much to his dismay, it turned out that most venues were already booked up in the busy theater season, both in the city and in the nearby small towns. While in St. John, on this little five-day hiatus, Houdini decided to attempt something he tried earlier in Massachusetts with some success, and something he'd become a master of later. A publicity gimmick to attract media attention. He marched into the St. John police station, accompanied by several reporters from the city's four newspapers, and declared to the officers present that he could escape any handcuffs that they had. While he was actually great at escaping handcuffs, he was thoroughly unprepared for what the police brought out to restrain him instead. One year earlier, the St. John police had become annoyed by a notorious petty criminal and seemingly mentally unstable character known as Lizzie Chicken. She was a rather boisterous local 36-year-old woman who was suspected by newspapers to be insane. Lizzie Chicken would get into fights with police who, in order to restrain her during her frequent arrests, would roll her up in a carpet and carry her on their shoulders to the police station. The chief of police thought that being rolled up in a carpet and carried down the streets to the police station was humiliating to the point of cruelty for Lizzie Chicken. So a new device was invented locally. This strange new device was able to restrain Lizzie Chicken in a way that she was unable to hurt either the police or herself. Today we know that device as a straitjacket. Houdini was alarmed when the police brought out the straitjacket, or as it was currently being called at the time, the St. John Maniac Cuff. Houdini had never seen or heard of such a thing before. William Kalouche, 
and Larry Solomon vividly described the effects of this event on Houdini in their biography of him called The Secret Life of Harry Houdini, writing. That night, Houdini hardly slept at all. During the few moments he managed to doze off, all he dreamt about were straight jackets, maniacs, and padded cells. The rest of the time he wondered how the audience would react to seeing a man bound in a straight jacket affect his freedom. According to Houdini himself, the next day he went to the St. John Lunatic Asylum, which you can hear much more about in the Backyard History podcast episode called Secret Diary from the Lunatic Asylum. He asked for, and received, a set of the restraints. By the end of the week, he had added the straitjacket escape to his act. While the new straitjacket act didn't actually make much of an impression on St. Johners when he first debuted it, it would later become his signature act, and it was the one that made him famous. With their accidental five-day-long break over, Marco the Magician and the Houdinis finally got to do a show. Fortunately, they got off to a bad start. It seemed that every performer on the stage shoot that night, from Marco to Houdini, had problems. None of their tricks seemed to go right. But, in stark contrast to Houdini's New England shows, where the press and the audience could be rather aggressive and heckle and boo him and even throw things, the St. Johners were at least polite. Nonetheless, the audience were disappointed at the poor quality of the show, and the performers were disappointed in themselves for not performing to the best of their abilities. The local newspapers, though, were much more forgiving with the bad show than the reviews had been in New England. For example, the St. John's Sun newspaper wrote, The performance was interesting, if not brilliant, but much allowance must be made for the first night on a strange stage. This faint praise continued in other papers, like the Globe, which misspelled his name as Houdinian, which, again, was a step up from New England, where newspapers possibly deliberately misspelled his name as Hyundai, which was then actually a very popular brand of laxative. As they kept playing their shows, though, their St. John residency continued to be a disaster. On the second night, they played at the 1,100-seat capacity Opera House. Only 122 seats were filled. Even worse, one of Marco the Magician's assistants quit after being forgotten in a spring-loaded box for several hours during the rehearsals. As they were all standing around wondering what became of the missing assistant, the box went off, and the poor assistant went flying through the air. When he landed, he, apparently in no uncertain terms, told everyone off and quit on the spot. Although both Bess and Harry Houdini would step in to assist Marco the Magician as his assistant on stage, he ultimately had to cut his own performances shorter after the loss of his longtime assistant. This gave Houdini more time on the stage to perform his set as the King of Cards. But he didn't actually know very many card tricks, though, so he began experimenting with what until that point had been kind of a secondary novelty thing he'd do on his own time, escaping handcuffs. Rather surprised by the positive reception he was getting in St. John for escaping handcuffs, but troubled by the low audience attendance, Houdini hatched a new idea for a publicity stunt. In front of the small audience at the Opera House, Houdini invited a local St. John police officer named George Baxter onto the stage to cuff him before he escaped from the handcuffs. 
As part of the warm-up for his escape, after Houdini brought Officer Baxter onto the stage, he bantered with him. He asked him how his day was. And then Officer Baxter sadly told the audience that earlier that day he'd had to shoot a sick horse. Which apparently really brought the audience's mood down. And it seems that Houdini just couldn't catch a break. And so the residency in St. John ground along, plagued by poor attendance. But just then, Houdini happened to meet someone who would change his life. Houdini had learned most of his tricks as a child through reading. He only moved to the big city as a teen, so he'd only seen third-rate circus performances himself in person. But he read an awful lot about these more masterful world-class magicians who didn't come to the Midwest, and he spent his youth dreaming of one day meeting one. Perhaps his childhood obsession with reading these great old-time magicians of the past was how Houdini recognized a sickly, aging, alcoholic old man that happened to be staying in the same Dufferin Hotel as him in St. John. It turned out that this tired old man was once the most famous magician in the world, Houdini's childhood idol, Samri Baldwin. Samri Baldwin was by that time thoroughly washed up and almost completely forgotten by the public. He wasn't in St. John to perform, and indeed, nobody would have had much interest in seeing him perform anyways. He was in the city because he thought that the cool seaside weather would be good for his various illnesses. But when he was younger, under his stage name, the White Mahatma, Baldwin had been one of the greatest stage performers of the mid-1800s. He was celebrated for his ability to blend comedy with mind-reading, fortune-telling, and seances. He had once traveled all over the entire planet on a world tour, performing his magic tricks in the United States, Japan, India, and all across Europe. But all of that was long ago. Baldwin was startled the young Houdini recognized him. Nobody remembered him anymore. He was delighted to meet this young man who looked up to him, and he was thrilled that Houdini wanted nothing more than to just sit with him and listen to him recounting tales from his glory days of touring the world as a famous magician and an escape artist. Because Baldwin had done a lot of tricks involving escaping from things. This was something that Houdini was interested in and played around with a little bit, and what would eventually make him famous. However, at this point he hadn't actually done that much in terms of developing a stage act of escaping. Yet. That was until Baldwin taught him about escaping handcuffs and how to turn the escape into a more exciting stage performance for audiences. Baldwin also emphasized to Houdini something that would stick with him for the rest of his life. Magicians claiming to employ spirits were actively deceiving the public, while magicians leaving mystery in the public's mind were entertaining them. Now that seems like a really strange point to make for us, but this is the Victorian era. Victorians had quite the fixation on ghosts, and spirituality, and all kinds of manners of superstitious beliefs. At that time, going to a magic show was probably a lot different from whatever you're picturing. Magic shows were taken very seriously. Magicians taken to the stage would typically make all of these grandiose claims that there were spirits responsible for the tricks they did. For example, Marco the Magician, as part of his stage show, would begin with this whole elaborate ritual claiming to be summoning ancient Egyptian occult spirits to perform his tricks with him on the stage. 
But of course, the show was just tricks, and it was done with literal smoke and mirrors. So, just to clarify that, say you're watching a card trick, and the magician guesses your card. The audience at the time weren't assuming that it was just a cool card trick, fooling you by moving his hand really fast. They thought that the magician controlled spirits to look at the hidden card and report back to the magician about what the card was. The flip side of all of this was that all sorts of charlatans would claim to be able to interact with these ghosts and spirits for a price. And the price wasn't like, you know, their soul or something spooky like that. It was a bunch of money. A lot of people ran scams claiming to be able to speak to dead loved ones if you paid them a lot of money. As a young child, Harry Houdini's older brother died and he'd helplessly watched as an unscrupulous psychic medium scammed his poor mother out of her very meager income, claiming that she was helping her talk to her dead son. Later in life, though, when he was at the peak of his worldwide fame, Houdini would launch a crusade against psychic mediums and spiritualists, exposing them as frauds, because he believed that they were exploiting vulnerable people for financial gain, like had been done to his mother. All of that was much later, though. During this time in St. John, Houdini was hanging out with Sam Ray Baldwin. His wife, Bess, was also learning from an elder and more seasoned performer. Famous vaudeville singer Maggie Klein happened to be in St. John as well. While bored between her own performances, she attended one of the shows starring Marco the Magician and Houdini. She watched as Bess had performed as the assistant to both men in their respective acts. Sometimes Bess would also perform her own magic shows, although it doesn't necessarily seem to have been every night on this maritime tour. When she did do shows, she would perform as a psychic mind reader. Audience members would write notes in envelopes, and she would hold them to her forehead, and then she would tell the audiences what was inside of them. In the opinion of famous vaudeville singer Maggie Klein, who was vastly more successful than the Houdinis, Bess just wasn't very good. She thought Bess was poorly dressed, she had boring makeup, and she had an awkward stage persona. Maggie Klein wasn't the only one to think that. One review in the St. John Gazette described Bess when she was assisting Marco the Magician's act. While Marco pretended to behead his stage assistant and put her back together, Bess Houdini had walked away just as unconcerned as if a thing as being beheaded was the most trifling thing in her daily life. And so the vastly more famous Maggie Klein took it upon herself to help Bess, who was then only 19 years old. While Houdini was learning from the elderly magician Baldwin, Bess was spending hours learning from a great. By the end of the Maritime Tour, Bess Houdini came into her own, becoming a pivotal part of these later events in Halifax that would mark the moment when the Houdinis truly came into their own. She would go on to become an indispensable part of Houdini's act, and the duo would remain inseparable until his death, decades later, in 1926. In fact, even after his death, Bess Houdini would spend years trying to contact Houdini's spirit in the afterlife, keeping a candle lit for him in their New York mansion. After a full decade of trying to contact her dead husband's spirit, Bess finally gave up. She extinguished the candle and said, Ten years is long enough to wait for any man. But all of that was much later, though. For now, Marco the Magician's tour was leaving New Brunswick and they were headed to Nova Scotia. 
They couldn't have known that the upcoming events in Halifax would bring their career lows, bankruptcy, and even arrests. They had no idea that things would get so bad in Halifax that it would finally convince Houdini to sell his magic equipment and to give up on his dreams and to go home and work in the tie factory. And they could also not know just then, in their bleakest moment in Halifax, Harry and Bess would rise again, stepping out into their own and selling out their first solo show, setting Harry Houdini on his path to global superstardom. Tune in next week for the final of the two-part series on the Maritimes tour that saved Harry Houdini. That was Backyard History with your host, Andrew McLean. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for another hidden story that happened in your own backyard. Produced by Jordan Lozier.